This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. Dan Miller. George Soros. Paul Peter Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. I left Wall Street in 2000. I guess that was about 17 years ago, but it feels like yesterday. The reason I left was that I just could not find an ethical way to pursue my passion for the markets within the industry. A few years later, I came across Todd Harrison and Minionville, which in his words was a community of people who were good at what they do and better at who they are. This really resonated with me, and over the past decade plus, I've really just learned a ton from Todd, so I'm really excited to have him as my guest for this episode. In this conversation, we talk about how Todd got his start in the business, his evolution as a trader, his experience working with Jim Cramer. But as usual, I used this opportunity to really dig into Todd's process. He discusses his four legs of the trading table, which has been immensely valuable to my own process. We also dig deep into what he sees as the greatest investment opportunity of the next decade. Todd recently started a new hedge fund to take advantage of what he sees as the next big thing, cannabis wellness. We talk about some of his favorite ideas in the space and how he's approaching it as a professional investor. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Todd Harrison. Hey, Todd, welcome to the show. It's really, uh, I'm really excited to, to have you here today. It's, uh, you've been a, uh, a hero of mine in the industry for a long, long time, and it's, I'm just really excited to be able to uh, pick your brain and, and and uh, tease out some of the information that I've wanted to for a long period of time. So thanks for doing this. And thank you for having me, Jesse. You, uh, you're not so bad yourself. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Um, so let's just uh, you know, start uh, in the beginning. How did you get into finance? Uh, I, did, did you start at Morgan Stanley? I started at Morgan Stanley. Uh, for better or for worse, I uh, circumvented the training program. So I ended up on the equity derivatives desk uh, back in 91, uh, uh, the Monday after I graduated, and it was uh, you know it was learn uh, feet by the fire, learn as you go. Uh, I was armed with a Black Scholes model and a and a Wall Street Journal, which neither of which did much good uh, understanding <laughs> the nuances of of equity derivatives. And you have to understand back in the day, not to date myself, but you know we were I was drawing the uh, the risk up in T accounts for the head of the desk. So uh, the industry's come a long way. So you were ba- it was basically equity options desk. So were you prop trading or was this you just kind of uh, uh, making making a market for customers? Or no, what no, was- it was prop trading. I had a book. I actually uh, I came into the business uh, and thanks to the people on the desk, uh, you know, good people who uh, I still talk with to this day. Uh, they took me under their wing and uh, taught me the ropes, and I ended up taking down the biotech book and the, and the financials book. And if you remember, this was back when the financials really went through that mass consolidation, Huma Call, Nations Bank, and so forth, uh, and Chemical and Chase and all that jazz. So uh, really got a good handle on the space uh, and on the biotech space, two, di- you know, two different ways, ways to trade those two sectors. Gotcha. I get a lot of questions from people who are wanting to get into the industry. How did you get the job in the first place? 
Well, back then it was much more of a relationship business. And I think today it still is a relationship business. It's just harder to find, you know, it's harder to find the good people, uh, given that so many of them have been replaced by computers. Uh, but I do believe it's a relationship business and it's a networking business. And, uh, you know, it was a it was a bit of a happenstance, serendipity, call it what you will, that I got onto the desk uh, and it was just about when, you know, once you have the opportunity, uh, the single most important thing, and I, I still tell this to people when they're coming up in the business, is you find somebody who you trust uh, and that you can rely on and who will get your back and you, uh, you know, you fly under your own wings. Uh, and that's ultimately a meritocracy that I think still, uh, while it's been diluted by central bank policy, and I won't really get on that tangent, but, you know, I do believe meritocracy is, uh, you know, sort of the backbone of the capital markets uh, and by extension, the backbone of the success of individuals uh, in the capital markets. So, OK, so relationship business, I, you know, you um, one of the things I've you know been thinking about and getting ready to, to talk to you is you have so many great trading aphorisms and I'm kind of jumping ahead faster than I wanted to, but where, I mean, did you have a mentor that, that kind of instilled a lot of this stuff in you? I mean, where did this stuff come from? No, not really. The mentors I had early on were focused particularly on trading. Um, you know, I've always had a very active mind, active imagination, you know, that, you know, which is great for creativity, not so good for sleeping. Uh, but it, it was always, you know, these, these phrases would come up in my head and I don't know if some of them were, used before. I'm sure a lot of them were. Um, but regardless, I think, you know, it's it's it, it sort of evolved out of the fact that uh, the observation that we've entered into this ADD, immediate gratification mindset across, across the world with digital media and, and all of the connectivity. Um, and if you want to get a point across, you have to make it quick, um, as opposed to making it louder, which has never really been my style. Uh, so yeah, there are some good ones. I agree, but uh, you know, it's really you know, it's it's you know, the key to connecting with people is really holding up a mirror to their to their self. It's that's you know the uh, that's one of the keys to advertising or uh, the the foundational constructs of advertising. But I think you know, as a writer or as somebody who uh, you know wants to build community, you have to really. Um, have a genuine sort of reflection. People need to see that within themselves. And, and you know, the one thing that stuck out to me, uh, uh, particularly throughout the process of creating Minionville, uh, was that the you know the common denominator in a lot of people who were part of our community where they were good at what they do, uh, better at who they are. And I think a lot of the human capital or the the focus or the uh, respect for human capital in the finance equation, or really in any equation these days, um, has been lost in the shuffle. But I, I still think there's a lot of good people who believe in doing the right thing, who believe that their name is their word. Uh, they don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't steal, all that jazz. I think that you know there are good people out there, and I think that that's you know that's something to be thankful for. Absolutely, and it's something that you know honestly. I'm, you, you might be a little too generous with the industry and saying there's a lot of people out there like that. You know, I, I, I find that that's a rare you know, way to look at it uh, in, in our industry. But uh, you know, something that Warren Buffett has talked about, you know, in any industry, you know, whatever, wherever you work, it's, you know, who you work with is one of the most important factors. You got to work with people you like and respect. And uh, so but I want to jump backwards a little bit well, yeah, back just, to the just, you know, you, you like the aphorism. So 
I've always said the definition of professional nirvana is to do what you love with people you respect while serving the greater good. And if you could check those three boxes, I think you're, you know, you're, you're all here the most. Oh man. Yeah, absolutely. Agree. And, um, you know, and, and in terms of the trading aphorisms, um, I'm going to have to, I'll put a link, um, in the, in the notes, uh, to this show to your, uh, 10 trading commandments. Those are things that just come up in my head all the time when I'm looking at the markets. Um, you know, there's, there's just so many in there that have stuck with me, but, um, that's very kind. Thank you. Yeah. You know, when we go back, you, you traded options for a long period of time and I get, People asking me too, you know, that are interested in, in uh, trading options. You know, how should, how can I get into this? What what's your best piece of advice for new traders um, who are interested in trading options? Well, I think there's a utility to paper trading. Uh, uh, you know, creating a model portfolio and trading it as an active portfolio. Uh, you know, if you're new in the business, uh, you know, what I would say is is to understand that there are it's a multi-linear dynamic. And what I mean by that is there's a multitude of metrics which go into creating the uh, supply-demand equilibrium uh, in the marketplace. So the way I've sort of used, uh, the structure I've used for my whole career was really to look at the market or a stock through four particular lenses, uh, one of which is fundamentals, one of which is technicals, uh, one of which is psychology, and one of which is structural. And, and just try to do the work on those four, uh, through those four lenses. And I think if you can get those four legs under the table, your odds of succeeding are, are much better. But it, it's, it's a craft. Uh, and, and there's a, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very intricate maze, particularly now, uh, where, you know, we've been in this sort of blow-off phase since last summer, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to not be lured by the sexy sirens of, you know, watching all your friends make money. But, you know, and I say this to the benefit of the people who have only been trading since, uh, you know, since 2009, uh, you know, risk is a two-sided sword, right? It, it risk cuts both ways. So uh, it's just understanding the, the duality of the market and, uh, and not get, getting caught up in the next best thing and always, always, always uh, discipline over conviction. And that's one of the uh, the ten trading commandments. But I love your idea of the four legs to the stock market table. You mentioned them. Could you go into each one of those in a little more depth? Uh, sure. So uh, let's see. Um, I'm thinking if I should use an example, but I'll just use. Uh, I won't use an example. So I'll just say. Uh, so fundamentals, I think we all understand, right? It's basically the earnings, the balance sheet, uh, the uh, the things that. Uh, that make up the uh, the molecular DNA of a company, right? And that's uh, it's it's fundamental fundamental analysis is really the probably the the most tried and true uh, methodology of trading. But I think it's one of four uh, four inputs that uh, that really dictate stock prices. The second one being technical analysis, and I don't know if technical analysis works because people follow it or if people follow it because it works. I, you know, I, uh, I sense that it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy to a point, although in today's day and age, with all the algos shooting against levels, it, it, it's lost some of its utility. Uh, but certainly uh, from a risk definition standpoint and, and, and to create context for uh, your time horizon and risk profile, I think technicals are an integral part 
uh, of, a, of a trading uh, thesis. Uh, the third being psychology, and, and this is probably the most important. It's not what the market or a stock is doing. It's what really how people perceive it to be doing. Uh, and, and that's really understanding uh, just, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I could point to any one uh, metric that I look at, but over the course of the last close to 30 years now, uh, I've, got a, I've gotten a pretty good sense of, of how to kind of share, look at psychology. And really just from a sentiment standpoint and an offside standpoint, uh, and when too many people are on one side of the boat, uh, I like to go the other way. And it's, you know, it's a risky strategy, but it's one that I've utilized over the course of my career. And the last one is structural. And that's really just looking at what's going on in, uh, you know, in the government, where, you know, the role of the central banks, money flows and, and things of that nature. Uh, and, and all four of them, you know, there are a lot of people who focus on each of those in particular and do pretty good for themselves. Uh, but by really marrying those four metrics into a process, I think you really cover a lot of bases. And, and, gotcha. and through that lens, you get to look at price as opportunity rather than a hindrance. So, you know, when your favorite position is down 20 points, you know, you're looking at it as a 20 percent sale as opposed to uh, or whatever percent sale it is, as opposed to, uh, you know, getting caught the wrong way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I can't help but asking this again. <laughs> you know, you, the, these, this stuff just is so powerful to me and, it, and it's had such a huge impact on my evolution as an investor, my growth, um, there, there wasn't a, a mentor. I mean, what, what were some of the resources? I mean, where did you learn, learn a lot of this stuff? There books, um, other traders who passed along, you know, they're, they're I, I would, not I would love to, you know, listen, I had good mentors. I, you know, I had folks like David Slane. I had folks like Jeff Sott, you know, later in my career, uh, who I consider a good friend, you know, finding good people, you know, you ask where I get this from. And it really goes back to the notion of, you know, of, of connectivity and uh, community. I mean, you know, particularly with Minionville and the ability to bring together these thought leaders in different sectors, different disciplines, uh, again, good at what they do, better at who they are, and really to build that sort of, uh, that, that circle of trust, for lack of a better word, but to surround yourself with, with good people who, you know, I always could tell uh, who was a fit for Minionville and by extension, you know, a lot of deals I look at, you know, if they, you know, I had a lot of high profile people call me and they wanted to get involved and they said, what's in it for me? And I said, well, nothing's in it for you, but there's a lot that we could do together. There's, you know, there's no limit to what we could do together, but, you know, it has to be viewed as a partnership, not a, you know, not, not as a, um, uh, you know, a bank account, so to speak. You know, and, and I think that's exactly what you accomplished with Men in Bills, that community of, um, you know, just a, pool of knowledge and, and, um, you know, a community of learning and, and sharing, uh, that, that wisdom. Is that, is that really, was that your impetus behind starting Minionville in the first place? No, it was not actually. Um, so the impetus, you know, I, I filled in for Jim Cramer, uh, the summer of 2000, uh, because he was going on vacation and, and I saw when he was, you know, I heard him talking to his editor and he said, I don't know. I'm going to the Hamptons, and you know, have you tried this guy? Have you tried that guy? And then I saw him look over the desk at me, and and he said, uh, you know, I got it. And, and he asked me, and I said, Jim, you know, I'm, you know, managing 400 million, 200 positions. I really don't want to take on another role. He said, do it for one day, and I did it for one day on that Monday, and I actually enjoyed it. It was a good synthesis. I had a lot of fun with it. I wasn't trying to impress anybody, but the ability to pull in Grateful Dead lyrics or Uncle Buck references or pop culture. 
um, you know, the lyrics that were double entendres for the market, right? Uh, and just being creative like that, because I think in, in finance, you lose a lot of that ability to, to really uh, to be as creative as, as you would ordinarily other be, uh, would ordinarily be. So uh, it was fun for me, and I, it was a good synthesis, and it was a good, um, really, uh, uh, it was good for me to be able to kind of write it down, look at it, and, and from a discipline standpoint, adhere to my own words, as opposed to rationalizing risk, which I think everybody does at some point over the course of their career. Uh, I ended up finishing the week out, uh, and sure enough, when I saw Jim, he was very happy about the, the performance of the page views, which I honestly didn't know, you know, I didn't know really what page views were all about. This was back in uh, Y2K, remember, and, uh, the, the beginning of, uh, of really the whole internet bang. Uh, you know, but I did it and then ended up, uh, he asked me to, to contribute a trading diary next to uh, his diary on the street.com. And I was happy to do it. Uh, it was it was a good outlet. It was a little bit complicated because Jim's style and my style are uh, very different. Uh, so uh, it was interesting to watch that dynamic. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I enjoyed it. And, and so uh, my grandfather, Ruby Peck, my grandfather uh, got very ill uh, the summer of, uh, of, of 2000. And I would go down to Florida every weekend to hold his hand. He was my best friend. And, I, you know, all the readers would write to me, oh, I hope you're enjoying the Hamptons. You're not here on a Friday. And so I eventually shared the story to kind of stop everybody from emailing me and saying, I'm not going to Florida. I'm going to share, you know, whatever time I have left with my grandfather. And lo and behold, probably got a thousand emails uh, from people talking about their love for their grandfather or uh, their story. And it was very powerful. And I would take them to my grandfather and I would read them at, at his bedside and it, it created this bond or this, this sense of duty, uh, for me anyway, uh, that I wanted to help them navigate what was a very tricky time in the markets. Uh, and then, uh, you know, sure enough, uh, you know, 9-11 happened. Uh, it was terrible for everybody. I'm not going to get into that story, but uh, I decided that I didn't want to work there anymore, but I didn't want to lose the connectivity with these people who I've developed this bond with. Very strange. You know, people joke. I met him over the Internet, but uh, literally, you know, scores of people. Uh, so when uh, I decided not to work with the street anymore uh, after 9-11, I, I set out full throttle to uh, create uh, a community online uh, to affect positive change through financial understanding. Uh, you know, a couple months later, I could have opened a blog. <laughs> Instead, I spent, uh, you know, a, a king's ransom to build this, uh, this platform. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it, it, for 15 years, it, it helped a lot of people over uh, and through a lot of different markets, uh, financial crises, so be it. So spiritually, it was a great, uh, it was a great uh, process. And I think, uh, you know, uh, I think that's, that means something somewhere. No, absolutely. And, and you know, you, you talk about meeting people on the Internet. I mean, that's how I, I met you. And, and for me, it was, it was extremely valuable, the, the, the site and the community. Um, but just to, to jump back in you know, the timeline, you mentioned, you know, working with Jim Cramer. So you were at Morgan Stanley. And then how did you, you, you left, you left Morgan Stanley to go work with, with Jim or no, I, I left Morgan out? Stanley to go work at Galleon to run their derivative department. At the time, Galleon was a $500 million shop. A year and a half later, it was a couple billion anyway, like 3 billion plus, I don't know, 5 billion maybe. 
And I was the sixth guy. Uh, there were five partners, and there was me. And I would hedge and trade the, the portfolio for the derivatives portfolio for the entire book, uh, and uh, in my own account. Uh, but I was really trying to monetize my ability to manage the master account. After a year and a half, and not getting any bonuses for that, uh, I was told that I didn't have what it takes to make partner, which was devastating at the time. In hindsight, it was the best thing that never happened to me. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of them. You know, uh, Raj is still in jail. Uh, so, so you know, everything happens for a reason, even if you don't understand it at the time. Uh, but I left there. I resigned, and I went to Kramer Berkowitz, where uh, I was really connected to my friend Jeff Berkowitz, who I'm still friends with. Very good guy, very smart guy, uh, and 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 Jim, obviously. Uh, and that overlap lasted a year. Jim went his own way, uh, and we managed the fund. Uh, we had a very good year in 2000, I think 37%. 2001, we were doing quite well uh, until 9-11. Uh, and even after the stocks reopened, we were having a nice year, but uh, it wasn't what it once was. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so Minuville uh, emerged shortly thereafter. And uh, it's been in my, uh, you know, my... Uh, my pro bono work ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank you for that pro bono work. It's been extremely valuable to me and a lot of other people that that I know. Um, uh, you know, I, I got to ask you too. You know, um, the the buzz and banter you know that that, that you created was such an awesome uh, feature of Minionville, and it was literally the predecessor for financial Twitter. You know, you talk about creating a, an online financial community. Buzz and banter was that without all the, uh, the trolls. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> so well, I mean, how does it, it feel to have essentially invented, you know, Twitter, finance Twitter? Yeah, no, trust me. I think about that sometimes. We we just we made the decision in our infinite wisdom to keep it behind a firewall to wall in the community. And we had a very robust, powerful community, but it wasn't at scale. And, you know, the fatal flaw of Minionville, I think, was the focus on quality over quantity. Um, and, and really staying away from acrimony as a whole. So, you know, when it came to the subscription business, which we ultimately sold, uh, it was, you know, it was out of the realization that in order to get these clicks, you got to, you know, talk about, uh, you got to scare people uh, or talk about, you know, disparagingly of people. And that just was never really the, uh, you know, the focus of Minionville or really the culture. So uh, it was best to sell that. And listen, Minionville, that's all we sold to Minionville. We still have, you know, it's been dormant more or less for a couple of years, but we still have, uh, you know, the website, the contents up uh, and the characters, uh, Hoofy and Boo, of course. So, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I've been trying to figure out uh, kind of what to do with that property as I, uh, as I transition into this new uh, arena. Uh, and, I, and we're talking to some people. I think ultimately, you know, in my in my in my infinite wisdom, I think that I, uh, you know, it it would be a great pivot to well, uh, cannabis wellness and uh, cannabis uh, lifestyle and wellness. Uh, but I don't have the bandwidth to be a part of any of that uh, uh, process because I'm going to focus full time on CB1. Uh, but but uh, we, I'm not talking to some people that are interested in doing that. And, uh, you know, so stick around. There may be a, a, a second coming of Menuville uh, just yet. But, you know, it really was one of the one of the one of the real catalysts for me really exploring the cannabis space. And when I talk about the cannabis space, I'm not talking about getting high. I'm talking about getting well. Right. And I think I think what what I'm very excited about is that most people, when they think about the cannabis industry, they they really think about 
Cheech and Chong and getting high. And the most liberals would, uh, you know, out there would talk about, yeah, I smoked a vape pen at dinner on Saturday night and, uh, you know, he, he, he. Uh, but what really got me focused on this space was really the, the, the wellness uh, benefits of cannabis and, 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 under, and really educating myself and others on, on, on a certain, you know, certain facts that have been really convoluted uh, over the course of time and, and really researching the history of cannabis and the government efforts and the research that's only been uh, allowed for finding negative effects and there's been no research allowed for finding positive effects and all this other stuff and reefer madness. Um, there's been such a brainwash uh, going on in society. And, and listen, full, full caveat, if you're under 21 and you're smoking marijuana, every single time you do it is additive to the damage that it's going to do to your development. So it's, it's really, really bad for you if you're uh, still developing. But as you get in, uh, through maturity, as you get more mature and get older, the wellness uh, uh, aspect of this is really, really powerful. And I'm, I'm talking about, you know, studies, preclinical studies, sure, but again, you couldn't, you couldn't study cannabis for the medical benefits and the cannabinoid receivers, receptors that we all have in our bodies, all human beings, all dogs, cats, plants, all have these receptors in our body that uh, basically crave the cannabinoids that are found in cannabis, right? So, you know, the, the research now that's starting to get done from the outside in, and, and I'm talking about overseas, Canada, Israel, uh, Great Britain, Australia, Germany, uh, they all have a competitive advantage over the U.S., but certainly uh, what, they're, what, what they're finding and the research is finding, and, and I'm very, uh, very happy to have uh, connected with my partner in, at CB1 who uh, cured himself from epileptic seizure disorder eight years ago and has subsequently read pretty much every... Uh, every you know uh, peer review and uh, and any sort of publications or abstracts uh, that have come out because again it's not covered on Wall Street it's not taught in schools uh, so this is a very uh, frontier oriented uh, uh, you know sort of exploration process but there have been tremendous tremendous. Uh, uh, breakthroughs that they found for childhood epilepsy, for existence, and cutting epileptic, epileptic seizures in children by 50%, by half, right? And it's the difference, really, Jesse, uh, and this is essential to our thesis, is that the FDA has to control this process, right? And, and so we're really focused on the clinical path because when you look at what they're doing for schizophrenia, what they're doing for cancer, what they're doing uh, you know, across the spectrum, and there's a whole plethora of, of indications that are being worked on, uh, we genuinely believe this is impact investing. This is a wellness play. This is a healthcare disruption play. And, and understanding that, uh, and understanding that most people who are, are focused on, uh, on cannabis are really looking at the wrong side of the pipe, no pun intended, uh, but really, it's it, the medical efficacy is really going to, in our opinion, if the if the FDA doesn't use it, they lose it to the states. If if they lose it to the states, this is, these are drugs that are uh, that you buy at dispensaries. If it goes through the FDA, it's medicine that is prescribed by a doctor that is covered by insurance. It's a completely different uh, conversation for, in terms of an industrial uh, evolution uh, and all the, the the supply chain that goes with that. 
Uh, and that's where we think it's going and it has to go that way. There's too much money involved for the FDA not to own it. Uh, so, and ultimately we see, uh, you know, the adult market, the adult use market and the medical market merging uh, under the auspice of the uh, FDA. And if you want to call it medicine, you have to go through this route. Uh, so we think that's going to happen. It's going to dilute a lot of the current marijuana uh, investments, whether it's the growers, whether it's the dispensaries, uh, not all of them. There's still going to be good money to be made, but the market's going to change. Uh, and, you know, the only way to really play this in the U.S. Uh, that I found is to find, uh, you know, the stocks that are going to benefit from the medical side as, as an emerging healthcare play and really focusing on those elements uh, on, the, on the biotech side of the equation and, and extrapolating that, that food chain down the curve, so to speak. You know, it's it's fascinating to me, and it reminds me it reminds me of uh, um, Linus Pauling, who you know wrote who wrote you know um, Vitamin C in the Common Cold, and you know and, and he wrote that book what fifty sixty years ago or something, and, and literally in the last you know several weeks, they you know this doctor discovered that intravenous vitamin C very likely cures sepsis, you know, which is a huge problem in hospitals. But, you know, Linus Pauling wrote 50, 60 years ago, the, the, uh, there's, because this is kind of a uh, generic, you know, commodity, nobody has any interest in trying to monetize it. And then there are huge special interests, you know, that, that have a huge interest in it not being, you know, discovered for that reason. And so it just reminds me, you know, cannabis is, has been around for so long. It's so it's available. Been around for 10,000 so, years. 10,000 yeah. years uh, this has been around and for a reason. Right. I mean, and so you talked about the indications. Right. So I talked about epilepsy, cancer. I think cannabis kills cancer is going to be the headline of the decade. I truly believe that. It was funny. I just had a conversation with a doctor who said, well, I'm not seeing it in the medical community or, you know, boots on the ground. And I said, well, you wouldn't because it's illegal. Uh, But right now, in terms of the the, the work that's being done preclinical, uh, from Parkinson's to opioid addiction to cystic fibrosis, glaucoma, autism, uh, you know, uh, uh, neuropathic pain, uh, uh, multiple sclerosis. I mean, there's so many migraines, pancreatic cancer, Tourette's syndrome. It's it's really it's really amazing to me uh, that this is not getting more press. Uh, and you're starting to see, and I've been I've been monitoring this sector for a long time, and you're not just seeing the press now in the in the um, in the fringe publications. You're seeing it in Forbes, the Washington Post. You're seeing it in U.S. News and World Report. And, and I think the difference now, Jesse, uh, and that was people are saying, well, why now? Right? This has been going on for you know for as long as you can remember, a, a, you know, generations anyway in the U.S. Uh, why now? Why is it going to be now when the government has such a uh, hard on to make to keep this as a schedule one? And I would offer that the Internet, uh, the Internet is making this possible now because people all over the world can now share their results with each other uh, and get uh, visibility on it. And it's hard to put that, you know, those horses back in the barn, uh, you know, especially when you're starting to, you know, clinically prove through two phase three trials that, this is cutting epileptic seizures in children by by 50%. And that's not getting kids high. The, again, 95% of the compounds in cannabis are non-psychoactive. So this is, you know, this is genuinely a disruptive 
medicine. And it's, it's projected to shave upwards of $4 billion initially off the uh, prescription drug trade, uh, which is why the, uh, the pharma lobby is spending so much money, why the spirits lobby is spending so much money. That's already, it's already impacting uh, you know, the makers of alcohol and beer. Uh, and that's going to continue. Uh, so sure, there needs to be parameters set up around uh, you know, the adult use market, uh, obviously, just like there are parameters set up around the alcohol market. But alcohol never cured cancer or, you know, is pointing in that direction. Alcohol never cut epileptic seizures in children by 50%, uh, yet that's legal. Cigarettes, zero benefit. You know, it actually kills you. Cigarettes kill you. Uh, And they're illegal. This is making people better. It's promoting homeostasis in the body. You know, I've even read some studies recently where smoking marijuana is actually good for your lungs because you're, you're injecting all of those cannabinoids into your lungs. Uh, it does not harm you. There's no evidence that it harms you. Uh, the, the most adverse effects that are being found in these clinical trials, you know, diarrhea uh, and, uh, you know, maybe some, uh, you know, some liver enzymes, but as opposed to the pathway that's currently uh, in the marketplace where they put you on a, a drug, then they give you another drug to offset the adverse effects of that drug. Then you're on another drug to offset the adverse effects of those drugs. And before you know it, you're on five drugs, you know, and right. that's not healthy, right? So, they, you know, you have to unwind from the conventional wisdom that Western medicine is the, is the cure-all and open your mind to the notion that this is something that's been around for as long as you know, human beings are registered on earth, right? There's even reference to it in, in the Bible, the green herb, right? So, I mean, there's a reason, uh, even if it hasn't been fully understood, we use the analogy that, you know, people smoke marijuana forever because it made them, the net benefit was, was something that they felt better about, right? It was like throwing spaghetti against the wall and, uh, and, and not really understanding why it's different every time. Or, but you know that there's something about it. You don't know the difference between syndica, uh, indica and sativa, uh, but, you, but you don't care, right? Because pot is pot. Pot's not pot. Uh, so the, 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 the science and the technology is now caught up to the fact that you can pull that spaghetti off the wall. You can now take that strand of spaghetti, you can plug it into a particular receptor on your body and really circumvent, you know, the, the, the pathway for, for drugs, you know, that, you know, that currently exists that you take this medicine and you hope that the bloodstream carries it to where uh, it needs to go. And it may or may not work. And if it does, you're probably going to need other medicine to offset that and so on. So, you know, the science is irrefutable, uh, and, and that's only going to become more demonstrated. So, uh, and I know I'm being uh, verbose, but uh, so we look at the, the sort of uh, evolution of the space, and we say, well, uh, it has to be led by medical efficacy, right? That is our thesis, all right? It's going to go from the medical efficacy route, uh, clinical data, uh, to the FDA approval, and, and from once the FDA approves use and demonstrates that there is medical efficacy, the DEA has 90 days to reschedule by law. Once that decriminalization happens, uh, institutions, which have been kind of banging on the gates, are going to bum rush the space, in my opinion. Uh, you'll, see, you'll see the sector uh, reflect that, uh, which will allow for more testing, more indications, and so on. And, and that's going to be, you know, I, we think that this is really going to be uh, one of the biggest industries in America by the time my kids are grown up. And it's going uh, to be a multifaceted industry from real estate uh, to, to consulting, obviously products, finance, 
uh, cultivation dispensaries, uh, uh, biotechnology, which is big uh, on our on our current uh, focus, uh, agri- a- agriculture technology. You know, think about it from a farming lens, Jesse. This is farming 2.0. This is a renaissance for the farm for Middle America. Uh, so you know, ultimately, cat tractor and deer are going to be cannabis plays. And, you know, so so it really is something that is. Uh, it, it's really misunderstood. Uh, although we are seeing the demographics really shift, 62% of Americans uh, favor it, which ultimately is going to really guide uh, the federal government's hand. Uh, because when you know the opposition is aging out, uh, and so ultimately uh, there needs to be, uh, you know, if you want to be elected, you have to speak to the people, and the people are are speaking loudly on this. Well, you know, I, I think of a, a few things. You know, we say that it's, you know, it's inevitably seems like it's you know marching in that direction towards legalization, but also you know other other uses. And you talk about the opposition aging out, and I think about you know the applications for it, um, you know, medicinally for aging people. You know, so I, I really kind of opened my eyes to it. I'm a fan of you know mixed martial arts, and I was watching the post-fight press conference. I think it was Diaz and McGregor, and Diaz, you know pulls out a vape pen and the you know, reporters say, what are you doing? He says, oh, it's, don't worry. It's just cannabinoid oil uh, that helps me with, you know, pain. And, you know, everybody should use this for pain. And I thought, you know, my mom suffers from arthritis and, you know, there's no oh. THC in it. And, you know, maybe there's an application for her arthritis. Well, you know, you, you, you said that laughing, but let me tell you something. There has been research done on Alzheimer. Uh, reversing the aging process. And, I, and I'm telling you, I wrote this on Twitter uh, last month. I said, I, not only do I think cannabis will kill cancer, I think it is a legitimate fountain of youth. I don't know if you saw that or not, but yes, I genuinely I believe that. Because you think about from a cosmetic application, the ability for women to put uh, you know, a certain extract on their face and r- remove wrinkles Tell me why. I mean, I don't know what it's like out there by you, but where I live on on Long Island, I don't know a woman that wouldn't buy that product. Okay, and that's just from a vanity standpoint. Uh, Older people, as their brains start to degenerate, cannabis has been shown to increase activity, reduce pain, and really fight off the the, you know the the uh, the degradation of the mind. You know, so I do believe this is a fountain of youth. And I think, you know, older people, uh, you know, are certainly I know older people who swear by it. Uh, it, it, it makes them laugh. It, it creates, uh, you know, it builds, uh, it generates creativity. Uh, it promotes homeostasis. Uh, it's a sleep uh, aid. I mean, there are so many reasons why uh, this not only should be legal, but should be, uh, you know, a genuine industry. And granted, when I first went on TV and talked about this in 2012, uh, you know, following a 2010 article I wrote, uh, you know, I had said, listen, from a pragmatic standpoint, uh, it's going to increase tax revenues, it's going to create jobs, it's going to lower the crime rate, and it's going to reduce prison populations. That in and of itself, I think, is powerful. But if you can make a a case, as is being made right now, that that this is curing uh, unmet medical conditions... And um, and really uh, battling against a lot of the ailments uh, that our that our you know population is facing, and, you know, and and you know we talk about this all the time internally. You know, it's a very uh, you know it's because of the processed foods and all of the other shit that we put into our body on a, on a daily basis, and you know why our country's obese. Uh, it's really you know we've heard 
uh, you know, the term thrown around, it's an endocannabinoid uh, uh, depression out there because all of the processed foods and all of the fatty foods that we're eating is really crippling the system. And what the uh, what cannabis is doing or the cannabinoid cannabinoids in cannabis are doing are uh, they're really replicating our own body's ability to produce these very same things. So intuitively, it makes sense. Uh, and now finally, the technology, the science, and the research is being done to prove it out. And there are, there is a, um, there are so many uh, uh, barbarians at the gate in terms of uh, clinical applications, preclinical, phase one, phase two, phase three, uh, that that's really the exciting part of the business. And it's one that's morally defensible, I'll tell you, because you know, even still, like when we go on some of these meetings, like, you know, we get asked, did you bring any samples? Ha ha. You know, and it's funny, yes, but that sort of speaks to the point of, of, of how cannabis is misunderstood and how we've been programmed to receive uh, that this is the devil's drug and this is really harmful. And it is if you're under 21. But there is increasing proof that it is not only not bad for you uh, over 21, but it is actually quite good for you. And I think when people start to understand that, uh, and that's probably going to happen, it's going to have to be through an FDA process and a decriminalization process for the institutions to get involved. But that's, that's going to become more and more understood given the internet and the connectivity across the globe right now. Yeah, you know, you, you ask, you know, what it's like here in Oregon, and it's recreationally legal and has been for a while, but I, I work out at a gym that's right here by my house, and it's all Olympic athletes who train for a lot, mostly winter sports, um, but endurance sports, and on tap at the gym, they have a cannabinoid-infused type of, like a kombucha drink, and they all drink it, and they swear by, you know, swear by it, and so these these are people who are elite athletes and take incredible care of their bodies and are very careful about what they put into it. And, uh, it's something that they're all using now. So, um, I think it's, I think it's, you know, especially here in Oregon, it's, it, you know, uh, it's, it's going places, but, uh, I, I think it's inevitable that, it, you know, this, this trend is going to take over the, the country. So, yeah, well, but, but I understand also, you know, I think sequencing is going to be an incredibly important, element of success, right? And I look at it much like the dot-com and having traded through uh, Y2K, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of pets.coms and there's going to be very few Amazon.coms. But the ones that are the Amazon.coms, you just want to hold on to for life and, you know, and it's going to create a tremendous amount of wealth in this country. Uh, and, and we're not, you know, our, we're not looking at this, our thesis isn't necessarily predicated on medical only. We think from a sequencing standpoint, that has to be sort of the entree. And that's going to, you know, right now it's a very clean seam that's sitting under the curve of cannabis. And we believe, I believe, that this is going to sort of morph into the tip of an arrow that's going to uh, lead the space higher. Uh, so, so really, it's it's going to change. You know, the the landscape's going to change. The the economics are going to change. There's 40 new uh, licensed producers coming online in the next six months. It's really going to, you know. So I believe cannabis as you know, even though there's a projected huge mismatch in in, in supply versus demand. Uh, out for a couple of years right now by a factor of eight. Uh, I, I do believe that marijuana is ultimately going to be a commodity and ultimately it's going to trade on the SIBO. Uh, you know, so it's just getting, you know, getting to, you know, from A to B to C and understanding that each step, you know, is, is a, you know, is a focus into itself. Well, you bring up a great point. Uh, one of the most 
you know, I ask, people ask me all the time, how do I take advantage, you know, what's the next big thing? And even figuring out what the next big thing is, is difficult. But even when you do, trying to profit from that trend is even more difficult. There's a great video I show people, you know, the car boom and how many car companies went out of business, even while, you know, car sales were exploding. Uh, and, and Charlie Munger talks about, um, you know, what's the, the biggest economic uh, innovation of the 20th century was air conditioning. Well, who really profited from, you know, air conditioning and allowing all the southern states to work through summer? Um, how do you know, how do you, what is your process in going and looking at um, the, the, you know, separating the, the uh, companies that are going to effectively take advantage of this trend versus the ones that are, you know, also rands? Well, you know, it's a filtering process. So, you know, I, I'm not looking to invest in private equity. I think there's inherent risk in private equity right now because the landscape is changing. Um, and I also don't like the idea of buying something and then it's worth what the next guy's willing to pay. And I'm married to a particular thesis, uh, come hell or high water, uh, which is likely, you know, you're, you're investing in a business and you hope that business is on the right path uh, in terms of monetizing uh, and, and, and profitability. Uh, so, you know, uh, for, as a first uh, level of, uh, of, of disclosure, we look at companies that have listed, right? Because the listing protocols have uh, been uh, are pretty rigorous, very rigorous. Uh, and there are different levels, of, of course, but, you know, where they list is a, is a big tell in terms of, uh, you know, the boxes they had to check to get listed on, on those exchanges. So that's, you know, that's the first layer of defense. And obviously, through through this approach, we're not touching the, the plant. We're not moving the plant across state lines. We're just investing in companies uh, that we believe are going to benefit from the overarching trend, whether it's, uh, you know, the cannabinoid uh, biotechs, whether it's the nutraceutical therapies or the pet food industry, which is huge, that are that are now injecting, uh, infusing, I should say, uh, CBD. I, I bought CBD for uh, for for my dog because he's a little anxious and he's a little, you know, he's more mellow now. I give CBD to my kids, non psychoactive, but it promotes homeostasis and wellness in the body. So you know, I, your analogy to to vitamin C is is a great one. Uh, and I think that, you know, this will be um, analogous to that to some degree. There's going to be a proactive application, right, uh, in taking uh, CBD as we're doing. Uh, and there's going to be a reactive uh, proposition in uh, taking the roots uh, and, and really the core research and applying it to unmet medical conditions. So, and of course, it's going to be uh, obviously the, the adult use market, uh, like, like you spoke to. And a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of people are enjoying that market just for the enjoyment's sake. And, uh, and, and again, uh, if alcohol and cigarettes are, are legal, I'm not quite sure how a, comp, how a plant uh, that uh, is helping people get better and, and promoting wellness uh, is illegal, but that's going to change. Uh, so, so the listing protocols are our first, uh, and then we're really looking across, uh, you know, we have a process, uh, I'm not going to share the entire process, obviously, uh, but it includes looking across unmet medical conditions, uh, finding these companies that have the right patents, have the right people, have the right cash on hand, uh, and, and really have the right focus in their work. Uh, and, and that's a, you know, it's a process, but it's a, it's a one that, you know, has served us in good stead so far as we get ready, uh, you know, uh, to move forward. Well, you know, you um, have been following and tweeting about and telling me about, you know, GW Pharma for a long time. It's a stock I looked at. I even have a friend here in Bend who 
works for private equity, analyzing potential pharma deals for them. And I said, look at GW Pharma for me and tell me what you think because I don't know how to look at it. And, you know, I, I, I you know, waited too long and, and I think the stock doubled a couple of weeks after that. Is, that. is that still one of your favorite ideas in the space? It is. And in full disclosure, I have a position uh, in, in the name. But, you know, listen, the fact that this, this, the, that the street uh, is, entire, is, is valuing the entire company on the Epidiolex launch, which is going to be a blockbuster. And I think the off-label use is the unknown, uh, right? Because once it's prescribed, it was actually very intelligent how they did it in, in uh, indicating for an orphan, orphan uh, disease and getting fast-tracked and all that stuff. Uh, you know, the off-label use, uh, I, we think, is going to be pretty powerful. But the, the street's only valuing that. Um, you know, the, the company on February 7th uh, said that their secondary, uh, excuse me, their primary endpoints for glioma, which is brain cancer, which is one of the most aggressive forms of cancer, uh, you know, were, were, were healthy, uh, were very good, uh, but they couldn't release secondary endpoints yet, which is overall survival, uh, because so many people are still living. Uh, you know, the, the ASCO conference was this past couple of days, and uh, they did not provide those secondary endpoints, which was a disappointment to me, given that I thought they might. But through a larger lens, it's quite positive that these people are still living uh, with brain cancer. Uh, you know, and, and they guided in February 7th to weeks to months. We're going to have that more data in weeks to months. It's now June 6th, uh, four months later. And we still haven't heard the secondary endpoints, which we think is very powerful. Uh, so, so there's that and the whole patent portfolio. And I know there's going to be some legal uh, wrangling come year end. But you have to understand the, the story behind GW, not to get too off topic, but it's very fascinating. In the 90s, the U.S. and the U.K. both ran studies to demonstrate the medical efficacy of cannabis. Both determined that there was medical efficacy potential. The U.S. returned to the war on drugs and kept its schedule one. The U.K. turned around and, and, and underwrote GW Pharmaceuticals. So they've been doing this since, you know, the mid-90s. mid, mid 90s. Uh, They've got a huge lead on, on the research side. So, yes, I do believe big, it's a buyer build for Big Pharma. Um, you know, it was interesting that Goldman came out and uh, initiated uh, coverage with a buy uh, at 138 and, and and also for the, I've been on the street thirty years, almost thirty years, and I've never seen a you know an a target on a on a on a on a uh, uh, on initial buy, buy recommendation by initial buy um, uh, research report. So the fact that they put on a three forty nine M and A target tells me that yeah they see you know the buy build uh, you know element to this. Uh, the stock's trading at 98 right now. So if you told me back at 138 uh, that you know you could buy this stock uh, at 98 with really nothing changing and the news and the story actually getting better, in our opinion, I would say, yeah, well, that's a that's a pretty good sale. Uh, I, would, I would I would buy a 35 buy this stock at 35 percent discount to current price, um, and I have. Uh, but from a you know the catalysts are unknown. Uh, there's also a case to be made that you know there could be a lot more um, competition for them very soon. Uh, but they have such a huge first mover advantage that this is you know this is genuinely the the cream of the crop in the space. So yes, I like it, um, and it's you know it's been painful uh, since uh, you know it's grinded lower uh, since uh, trading uh, getting upgraded in. And trading to 130, uh, 138, 137, 
uh, back in September, uh, but the story hasn't changed. It's actually getting better because it's getting cheaper. Do you think that's maybe it has to do with the election, um, you know, since then and, and potential, you know, uh, short term, um, you know, turnaround in the legalization movement or some pressure on that? Going back to the psychology, yes, I do. And I think, honestly, I'm very, very extremely, extremely happy that this government, this administration is throwing a wet blanket over the space because it's driving down the prices of cannabis plays and providing a better entry point, in my opinion. Uh, Unless you believe that cannabis is not going to happen, uh, and I would argue that it's already happening uh, in, in a lot of countries outside of the U.S., So there is that whole Europe play. There's a whole Australia play. There's a lot of different plays, but the U.S. has to come around because there's too much money for them not to. And ultimately, that's going to happen. There's going to be a banking mechanism. There's going to be a federal tax. And it's going to be, you know, in my opinion, really, you know, a grand bargain of sorts between the states and the government, uh, if you want to call it medicine as opposed to calling it drugs. And I do believe that's going to be the lens that ultimately, in time, it's going to take years and years, but ultimately I do believe that uh, that it's really all going to fall under the FDA purview, uh, you know, because it's all going to be a treatment of some sort. Uh, but that's going to take a lot of trials and a lot of failures and a lot of successes. So it's going to be very volatile, uh, but you have to have a point of view if you want to be, make money. Uh, and I have a point of view that, uh, that this is really at the, at the early innings of a very long game. Yeah. Yeah. And so and then on the that's the kind of the pharma medical side on the recreational side. Um, do you have any thoughts on I, I think you've you've told me in the past, you know, that and I and I think about, you know, Warren Buffett says, you know, if I give you a billion dollars, you know, could you come in and compete against against uh, whatever business it is that you're looking at? Um, and I think you mentioned to me, you know, like Philip Morris and Altria at, at some point. You know, these guys are going to get into the act and the recreational yeah, or, or Daniels, uh, you know, Monsanto also. And, you know, listen, you know, just follow the money. I found just follow the money and you'll you'll get to the answer. Uh, and there's way, way, way too much pent up demand uh, globally for this not to be embraced as an industrial. You know, and think about it, hemp, you know, the, the, the industrial uses of hemp. Uh, from, you know, car doors. I mean, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, look at what's out there. You got opioids, which are killing people. You have cannabis, which are, you know, improving the wellness of people. You know, you have hemp, which is all natural versus plastic, which is not all natural. And, you know, you know, understanding that the Paris Accord, you were, we're one of three countries now not in the Paris Accord. And, you know, maybe, uh, you know, we want to negotiate, whatever it is. But, you know, if you care about the environment, which I believe a lot of people do, I certainly do, uh, you know, there are benefits to using this all-natural substance, uh, you know, across a whole scope of, of different emerging industries. And I mentioned the nutraceutical side. You know, we're watching what Nestle's doing with, you know, with, with a lot of, uh, you know, with their PEP and other compounds. And, you know, we, we do believe that, you know, CBD infused is going to be a, a rite of passage for pretty much every food group. I've already had conversations with certain potato chip companies. Uh, you know, there is going to be sort of this, um, uh, you know, jumping the shark, so to speak. And, you know, but, but I'll tell you what the, the dangerous part uh, about this uh, arena right now uh, is that there's so much supply coming on on you know on uh, you know coming online uh, 
uh, with the growers that, you know, do you want to really invest in the commodities side? You know, a lot of the deals that I looked at, you know, were really a function of, uh, you know, you can make eight ten percent if you get your money back. Uh, the economics weren't good. The risk reward wasn't good, in my opinion, which is really the catalyst behind really, you know, taking this dive and moving into a space and being able to build a diversified approach to a particular theme and thesis, which is the wellness thesis. And, you know, really genuinely, not from an optics standpoint, but genuinely believing that this is a wellness play and this is a healthcare disruption play, uh, you know, it's really, it's really not hard to get excited about it. Well, I think you make make a great point in pointing to the wellness applications because everybody's focused on recreational uses and 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 uh, you know possibly the more profitable and you know the bigger impact positive impact on society is through these wellness. Um, and again, that's the path, that's what that's the pathway to legitimacy because the FDA. Again, it has to use it or lose it. There's a there's a chance. I would I would say about a twenty percent chance, but there's a chance that the government is going to turn around when uh, when GW files for Epidiolex and they're going to say, okay, well we're going to make CBD legal, uh, decriminalize CBD, but keep cannabis as a Schedule One, which is fine because a lot of these other indications that are coming through the trials right now have a very healthy THC component. I'm talking about the glioma trials in particular. That it's going to be, you know, it's a matter of time before they're going to have to bite the bullet. And once that happens, the DEA has to reschedule. Once that happens, the institutions get involved, and you know, and off we go. So that's the thesis. And listen, it could be wrong. You know, I've been wrong plenty in my career, uh, but you know, this feels different to me. So you know, we're excited about what you know about the space. Well, Todd, you're, you're very generous with uh, your, your thinking in, about this stuff and, and the research and stuff that you're following. Is Twitter the best place for people to keep up with uh, this project? Yes, and, and listen. To be clear, this is not this is not a solicitation. I actually, you know, would actually err to the side of not accepting uh, investments from people who heard about it through this, just because you know, from from a legal lens, you know, you have to be crispy, uh, you know, crispy clean uh, in terms of how you operate. And I've always operated, you know, with a healthy degree of separation between the line, the proverbial line. So this is not a solicitation for investment. It's really, uh, you know, we're excited about the space where we think we have a pretty unique approach uh, to so how we view it uh, and a very positive approach uh, to how we to how we view it. And, uh, you know, for those who uh, who were interested, uh, you know, we update uh, our Twitter account uh, with the headlines that we think matter to the wellness thesis. Uh, and that's at uh, at CB1cap.com. Uh, or at CB1CAP, I guess, would be uh, the Twitter handle. And it's really fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, and I encourage people to really, uh, to really understand it because I think education is critical to the, uh, to the uh, success of uh, you know, investors as well as uh, a lot of the patients who are going to benefit from this tremendous uh, you know, research. Well, as you've, you've demonstrated with you know, Minionville and, and um, as long as I've known you, you have a... a a, uh, a desire to to share um, things that you think are valuable with people and, and things that do good in a broader sense. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to you uh, in that respect and also for taking the time to share your thoughts today um, on the show. And I wish you the best of luck with the new the new venture. I appreciate it, Justin. You're one of the few people I, I pay attention to what you say. So I really appreciate you inviting me on and having an opportunity to connect again. Tiny Todd, thanks. All right, buddy. Take care. 
And that does it for another episode of Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. For notes and links regarding our conversation today, please visit thefelderreport.com. And until next time, buy low, sell high.